Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear my conversation with actress Angelica Ross. But before we get to that, I have questions. Rumor has it Michael B. Jordan and Lori Harvey are splitsville to the joy of many thirsty people on the internet. Lori's racking up quite the list of Hollywood exes. And to that, I say... Across the pond this past weekend, Queen Elizabeth celebrated her platinum jubilee. Who knew a party for a 96-year-old could have so much drama? Well, I guess what the UK considers drama. Harry and Meghan were there, and contrary to what people are saying, they were not booed. That was Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, by the way, is keeping his job. Back over in the States, the trial in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard lawsuit has finally wrapped up after six weeks. And since the last time we talked about it, a lot has happened. So I called up someone who was in the courtroom. My name is Emily Yar, and I'm an entertainment reporter at The Washington Post. If you've been following this trial, you know some of the details that have come out are pretty disturbing. So heads up, there will be some descriptions of assault and violence. After Johnny Depp's side rested their case, Amber Heard's lawyers called several witnesses including one who claimed to have seen some of the violence between Depp and Heard firsthand. Amber's sister testified, and she was notable because she was the only witness who testified that she saw a physical fight between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Everyone else they talked to said that they had heard these things secondhand, but Whitney Henriquez, Amber's sister, told the jury that there was an incident where she saw Amber and Johnny arguing, and then she ran up the stairs, and then something happened where it seemed like she was afraid she was maybe going to be pushed down the stairs. And so Amber smacked Johnny, and then she said that Johnny grabbed Amber by the hair and, and smacked her. And yeah, so she was the only witness that said she saw a physical altercation. Amber Heard also took the stand, and she made some pretty shocking accusations against Depp, including sexual assault. There were a few times she got really, really emotional on the stand and had trouble talking at some times um, when she alleged that Johnny Depp sexually assaulted her with a liquor bottle. He, you know, beat her multiple times. She said he hit her, kicked her, and she was on the stand for multiple days. And also during cross-examination, it got pretty tense at times um, with Johnny Depp's lawyer, you know, as Johnny Depp has denied that he did any of those things. After Heard's side wrapped up, the jury heard closing arguments and they deliberated. They found that Johnny Depp and Amber Heard both defamed each other, but they awarded Johnny Depp more money. Remember, this lawsuit was over Amber Heard's right to call herself a victim of domestic abuse. The jury decided that Amber Heard defamed Johnny Depp on three counts um, with her op-ed, with the headline and two of the statements she wrote, um, one saying that she had become a public figure representing domestic abuse, and they awarded him $15 million in damages, which will be reduced to about $10.35 million um, because of Virginia law and the caps on punitive damages. And the jury also decided that Johnny Depp, through his lawyer, Adam Waldman, had defamed Amber Heard with one of the three statements he made to the press in 2020, and they awarded her $2 million in damages. 
When we talked to you the first time, we spoke a bit about the crowds that formed outside the courtrooms, a lot of them in favor of Johnny Depp. What was their reaction to this verdict? So a lot of people actually had gone home. A lot of the Johnny Depp fans that had been at the courthouse for weeks went home after closing arguments on Friday, May 27th, because Johnny Depp was no longer there. Um, He flew to the UK and he's been performing. He's been playing guitar in concert with Jeff Beck ever since. So he wasn't there anymore. So there were way fewer people who were actually in the courtroom. But when the verdict was read on Wednesday outside the courthouse, a huge crowd had gathered because there was about an hour and a half delay between they said the verdict was ready and when it was read. So by three o'clock on Wednesday, a massive crowd had formed outside the Fairfax County Courthouse. A few hundred people were there and they're pretty much all there for Johnny Depp. And there was cheering and signs. And one woman brought a confetti cannon that she was not allowed to shoot. And there were people dressed as pirates. So even though, yeah, it had been such an intense atmosphere in the courtroom, there was basically a party going on outside. And and they gave his lawyers kind of a hero's welcome when they walked out. That reaction pretty much mirrors the reaction online particularly on TikTok and Twitter, where people seem to be overwhelmingly in support of Johnny Depp. And that support is at odds with a lot of the think pieces that I'm seeing that are calling this trial and the fandom around Depp disturbing. This was not the tone at all throughout the trial. You didn't really see a lot of this, um, especially in, in the mainstream media. Um, you know, sort of opinion pieces about the trial. But now some of the ones that I've seen lately have been basically saying that they're really concerned about what this verdict says and whether it will chill the impact of the Me Too movement. Experts are really concerned about what it will do to the Me Too movement and also whether it will prevent or make domestic abuse survivors and victims think twice before speaking out or making allegations public because they're really concerned that they could get sued for defamation and what could happen to them or it could all become public. So I definitely have seen more of that in recent days. And as someone who sort of covers entertainment, covers pop culture, is it just the sheer appeal of Johnny Depp and his star power that sort of uh, making people be on his side, regardless of the facts that have come out in this case? Like, what do you make of the court of public opinion on this? I think it's a lot of things causing just the huge swell of support um, for Johnny Depp. I mean, a lot of people I talked to at the courthouse were genuinely Johnny Depp fans who said they believe he did absolutely nothing wrong, that he always seemed like such a nice guy and so sweet, and they didn't believe anything Amber Heard was saying. Even some of the things that came up, like his vulgar text messages, they, you know, dismissed that as having like a dark sense of humor and that Amber Heard must have driven him to get to that point. So there was a fair amount of that. I think for other people, especially content creators on YouTube and TikTok, this was just a way to capitalize on the conversation. They probably didn't have strong feelings about the case either way, but saw that so many people were interested and wanted to be a part of it and saw they got a lot of views and obviously A lot of the views were for pro-Johnny Depp. So yeah, I think it was a combination of things. What are Amber Heard and her lawyers saying about the verdict? She already released a statement um, saying how disappointed she was in the verdict, that she showed all this evidence and people still didn't believe her. And her lawyer made a point of saying that on both the Today Show and CBS Mornings, saying that obviously the jury was under strict instructions to not look at the internet, not read about the case. Um, But her argument was basically that that would have been impossible over seven weeks, including a 10-day break. 
that they have weekends, they have lives, they have families. And given the massive amount of coverage that this case got, she said that she didn't think it was possible that they couldn't have been influenced by everything around them, given that they were not sequestered. We'll have to see if Amber Heard and her lawyers plan to appeal. What does it mean to be the first of something? Here on Pop Culture, we mention a lot of firsts, particularly during Heritage Months. You know, stuff like the first sitcom to star a Black actress or the first woman to direct an Oscar movie. And this Pride Month, as we look at LGBTQ representation on the big and small screens, I'm sure we'll bring up a few more firsts. But when we talk about firsts, a few questions come up, like the obvious one. Why did it take so long? A first just means a lot of people were excluded before. And I wonder what that exclusion took from us, the audience. All the stories that weren't told, all the talented people we didn't get to meet. I also think about what that title means to the first person in a space that obviously isn't or wasn't always welcoming. I appreciate the acknowledgement of being a pioneer, but anytime people talk about being the first at anything, I'm like, okay, so that means you're, you're probably going to be the worst at it. I don't think anyone has ever used the word worst to describe Angelica Ross. She's one of those people who can do everything and seems to do it well. She's an actress, singer, musician, CEO, and self-taught computer programmer. She's also the first trans woman to get two series regular roles with her characters on Pose and American Horror Story. But of course, a lot of us met Angelica through her role as Candy Ferocity on Pose. I'm a star. I know who I am. Yes, you are. I am somebody. I got heart. I got talent. I'm a star just like Madonna. That show, by itself, did more for Black and Brown trans representation on television than really any other show before it. The series finale of Pose aired last year, but the show's legacy lives on. Here are some more firsts. Billy Porter, one of the actors on the show, was the first openly gay Black man to win an Emmy for a leading role on a drama series. MJ Rodriguez became the first trans actor to win a Golden Globe. She won Best Actress in a Leading Role. Janet Mock, one of the writers and directors on the show, was the first trans woman of color to ever write or direct an episode of television. And at the time that it aired, Pose had the largest cast of trans actors in TV history. And Angelica Ross was a part of that history. Today on Pop Cultured, a conversation with Angelica about her career and how she brings her authentic self to her work. If you haven't seen Pose, it's a show about the lives of Black and brown queer people living in New York City. It's set in the 80s and the 90s, and most of the characters are part of the New York ballroom scene. Think Paris is Burning, but a dramatized series. In a lot of ways, Pose was an homage to many of the pioneers of ballroom. Several of the characters are loosely based on real performers. And we get to see that a lot of the elements of drag as we know it today were born out of this ballroom culture, like lip syncing. Lip syncing is the future. Girls are making serious coin in those downtown bars. Okay, this is not the gong show. This is not putting on the hits. Honestly, I was so honored to be the character who was like, you know what, we should be doing lip syncing. Lip syncing is the future. In one of her most iconic scenes, Candy performs a lip sync to Stephanie Mills' Never Knew Love Like This before. She does the performance posthumously. Spoiler alert, Candy dies on pose. But she does come back as a spirit, kind of often. And on the show, 
Candy is the one who brings the lip sync to the ballroom. In fact, on Pose, that category came to be known as Candy's Sweet Refrain. For Angelica, that moment was special because it underlined the unique experience for Black and brown queer people. When it comes to a lot of Black and brown queens, we didn't just have the ballroom scene. We heard Anita Baker. And Phyllis Hyman. The Black queens that I grew up watching perform, they would even bring Yolanda Adams to the club. You hear me? And we would all be up there in the Holy Ghost. Playing Candy wasn't just a role for Angelica. She came up watching the ballroom scene as a drag performer herself. And a lot of what she saw, she brought to the set of Pose. Candy was tough and scrappy, and she was constantly arguing with the judges at the balls. She didn't have a lot, but she was willing to do whatever she had to do to get what she needed, even though it didn't always work out for her. Angelica says she often brought the spirit of queen she knew in real life to her performance. I knew immediately that I was going to be championing the Banshee girls because I came up in like more so the pageant side of things, but I was what I call ballroom adjacent. So we would go to the balls, but I didn't compete in the balls. I would go to the balls and there was this girl, Baja, that I remember. And Baja was not the prettiest of queens. But when I tell you she was a confident girl and she could sell caution tape as a garment. Sometimes she would walk the ball in an Aldi's bag and she would make a garment out of an Aldi's bag and safety pins and slay the ball. I remember those times so vividly. And when I think about that, I think about the queens who have been resourceful, who don't have their kitten caboodles full of rhinestones, who aren't able to have day jobs that pay for the rhinestones and the fabric to make gowns. I still see those queens in Chicago every day who are those resourceful queens who can make drag out of almost nothing. Baja taught me, girl, as long as you are confident, you can carry. And she also taught me, she told me she would get her OE, her old English, like uh, her drink, her 40. And she'd be like, Angelica, now listen, when you go to the corner store, you go in and you get, get out. You get what you got to get, you get out. She's like, if you hear, oh, hell no, bitch, don't look left, don't look right, just go. So that was literally like the stuff that's handed down the blueprint of how to survive and navigate these very toxic masculine environments that want to oppress femininity wherever they see it, especially in queer and LGBTQ folks. Before landing the part on Pose, Angelica had been acting for years in a lot of small parts. She worked with an agency that liked to send her out on cattle calls. Cattle calls are like the auditions you kind of see on TV where people just show up and wait for their name to be called. I asked her how she went from that to Pose. I befriended one of my agents and I secretly told him that I was trans. I was before then I was writing under the radar. No one knew. So I was in like Little John and the East Side Boys. I was in their remix uh, music video. and No one knew that I was trans. And then I started getting music video requests and I told him, don't ever send me on those music videos ever again. Because I just, I felt so unsafe in those environments, especially with people not knowing that I was trans. I was like, I don't, I can't do that. But then I got a call from that catacall agency and they were like, hey, uh, we got a call looking for you to audition for this thing. 
I originally said no. I turned the project down. I just kept passing it on to other trans people and said, hey, there's this project going on. You should go audition. Because I didn't see myself as, as a lecturer. I mean, the only person who could play Electra is Dominique. And then there was Blanca. And I was like, well, Blanca got like a little Latin flair that like Blanca in the name, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I didn't see myself between these two characters that we were reading for. So basically, I ended up finding out that they were using those characters to also find the other characters of the house. And once they saw my tape, I got a call back. They flew me to New York and I auditioned in front of Ryan Murphy. The studio executives that were all there was like 16 people in a room. It's so nerve wracking. But after I met with Ryan Murphy and I left, he said, Angelica, I just want you to know that I think that you're a really talented actress and I do hope to get to work with you in the future. And so as I left out the door, I just thought that he was giving me a soft kick in my ass and just saying that was sweet, but thank you and goodbye, but in a nice way. But turns out like he was real and he wrote the role candy for me after meeting me. And even after seeing me work on set, my role actually as candy expanded because I wasn't initially that much in the script. But then Ryan Murphy would interrupt scenes and he would like, uh -uh, Candy, say something. He would like, Candy, do something. And I would, was allowed to improv. So a lot of the scenes that you see and a lot of those goofy stuff that I'm doing, I'm improv -ing. Somebody chop already. Why don't you come down here and chop me yourself, you fat f oh! No, she didn't. No, she didn't, bitch. <laughs> One of the things about this show it had all, a lot of joyful moments. It had a lot of moments that we celebrated, but it's also a very heavy show. Like, I don't know if there's a, a TV show that's made me cry as much as Pose has, like, ever. Baby, it hits you in the gut. Every time. And as we just alluded to, your character dies in a very violent way. It was something that I think needed to be raised, but it was also a thing that, for me, brings up this idea of, like, we want to tell stories that are authentic. And sometimes those stories are gritty and they're hard to watch. How do you strike the balance between bringing those stories to life, but not making the trans experience that we show on television or in movies just about the pain and these horrible things that happen? Right now, there is a misunderstanding, a huge misunderstanding about the trans community that we can't take a joke. Let me tell you, on Pose, some of the folks were introduced to real reading. Like, reading, we would cut, go for blood, do you understand? Look at the fruits of my labor. A foolhardy chunk who makes her living on the pole, and a brainless wonder who thinks the way to get curves is to stick Charmin in her drawers or to inject cement into her derriere. House of ferocity, you two are about as fierce as my morning cornflakes. That was Electra reading candy. Electra is one of Pose's most infamous house mothers. She's basically known for reading people for filth. And reading is the art of the insult. It's something that was perfected in the ballroom. A lot of us girls sometimes, my, I remember my sister Kenya Black, like we would sit around in circles and be in stitches, in crying tears, laughing so hard at ourselves, at each other, at reading, at all the different things. And when you're reading, nothing is off limits. So to Angelica's point, if you're going to dish it out, you have to be able to take it. Because what else can you do but have a sense of humor when life is that challenging? And what I thought that Pose did so beautifully 
was it brought the funny, it brought the fun and the beauty and the glamour and also brought our pain. So what you see there is what happens when we are allowed to be in control of our own narratives. We won't shy away from telling you the truth. If you give us a space that is safe for us to talk about and share our truths, we'll tell you all that and give you the drama and all of it, but we'll also share the joy that you don't know that is radical for us to even claim in this space. It's radical for us to have joy in households that have been religiously persecuting us. It's radical to have joy in a space in an LGBTQ umbrella that says there's somewhere over the rainbow except for you black folks. People don't understand that we still fight racism under that umbrella. But if you allow black and brown people to be centered and to lead our narratives like we have in pose, then you get to ride the roller coaster and you get to not only feel our pain, but you get to have that moment of joy when you rise up and like Angel gets married or somebody wins a trophy or something good happens to one of us for once. After Ross left Pose, she signed on to another production from Ryan Murphy, the anthology series American Horror Story. If you don't know it, it's a long-running show on FX where every season has a different supernatural horror mystery plotline. Sometimes it's campy, sometimes it's really creepy. And a lot of the actors show up in recurring seasons in different roles. The characters that Ross played were definitely very different from her iconic role as Candy on Pose. A psychologist, I recently spoke to Ted Bundy down in Florida and pried confessions to two unsolved murders from him. And a chemist. I have a PhD from Harvard. Meth is well below my pay grade. One of the biggest shifts that I tried to create first off when I went over to American Horror Story was that I had to remove the sass. I did not want to be seen as a sassy Black character around all these other white characters. So I had to refrain from the candy character doing the head and saying, now, you know, that ain't this and blah, blah, you know, doing all of that and pull that way back, still being my black self that I want to be, but being more led by something else. So both of my characters in American Horror Story were led by academic inclination. There was something that they were trying to solve. I loved being able to actually have the space over several episodes to actually be a focus of the storyline. I was one of the main characters in storylines, as whereas in Pose, I was kind of in an ensemble cast where I was not necessarily a part of the main storylines. On American Horror Story, and correct me if I'm wrong, those two characters that you played, it never was said explicitly that they were trans. Like it wasn't necessarily a part of the storyline. And you mentioned that like a lot of the roles that you played, you know, prior to Pose, you weren't out at the time. And so people didn't necessarily know. When I think about that, like I'm of two minds, right? Like I'm like, on the one hand, representation matters. And it matters that we know what the character's identity is and all of that stuff. But on the other hand, I'm also like something about that also feels like progress. When you as a trans actress are playing these characters and it's not necessarily about your identity or anybody else's identity in it. And I wonder how you feel about that and like what that represents for you to play a character that isn't explicitly trans. I think that it's a little two-sided for me because I think we have, when it comes to trans representation, we're talking about trans, you're talking about an umbrella. So you're talking about a spectrum of the way that people 
are trans, visibly trans or not. To some people, I'm visibly trans because of my voice. Some people are like, oh, that I heard her speak. As soon as I heard her speak, I knew she was trans. And other people understand that, well, there's cis women with voices just as deep. Or, you know, there's trans women with broad shoulders or there's trans women who are super tall or what have you. But what I would say is, for me, it's about focusing on what's in the room and what's currently a factor in the story. So say, for instance, just like me being Black, I can enjoy a show that has like what they call color blind casting, where you have just Black people put into roles and it's the same show. It's just Black people in it. But I think that things can be a little bit more authentic when the elements are not this elephant that we're ignoring in the room. And we're not just automatically living in some post-racial society and we just didn't know how we all got here. But like having my blackness be a factor on screen is something that I'm very aware of. When I'm on American Horror Story, I play that in the background of a lot of my stuff. It may not even be in the situation, but the fact that I'm a black chemist who's worked for the military for nine years lets me know that I'm a person who has been underestimated, undermined and all kind of other things. So when I look at uh, white people who don't know as much as I know academically, there's a certain air that I had about myself and my blackness in that space. I bring so much to that space. So when it comes to being trans, it all depends because my experience is one where I have more of a cis heteronormative experience. I'm not normally read as trans until I am. And so I would love to be able to play those stories where it's not a factor until it is a factor. So maybe we're watching some story and you're just watching a woman about her life until all of a sudden the past comes back. And now we have to deal with those things. But for me, it doesn't have to be a focal part of the story unless that's what the story we're trying to tell at that moment. Angelica isn't just taking over our TV screens. She's also an advocate for trans rights. And she's a self-taught computer programmer who's making a way in the tech industry for other trans people. In general, when it comes to the workplace, trans workers face discrimination and have higher unemployment rates and lower salaries. And that disparity is even worse for trans people of color. So Angelica is using her talent as the CEO and founder of Trans Tech, a company that helps black and brown trans and non-conforming people find work in tech. It's an online and offline community made up of LGBTQIA plus folks, but with a centered focus on black and brown queer and trans folks. Folks who are the most marginalized in our community, folks who tend to have trouble accessing resources, educational resources, job resources, things like that. So I created a space because I come from grassroots organizing. I'm radicalized in all the ways I've been to so many retreats and things over the years to uh, learn how to advocate for my rights, how to understand systemic racism and what that is. So. I've had to understand that capitalism is a very disgusting machine, but it's a machine that is not going anywhere anytime soon. And so as we learn how to create new pathways and dismantle oppressive structures, we still have to learn how to thrive in the environment we find ourselves in. So TransTech is about meeting people exactly where they are. If you have no college education, if you barely have a GED, what are you passionate about? Because whatever it is that you're passionate about, technology can be that catalyst to make you an asset in the industry. 
So if you're interested in Hollywood and the film industry, don't just look at being a star in front of the camera because that's a hard way to get on that. And you got to hear a lot of no, a lot of times. But when you know how to edit audio or when you know how to do lighting or photo editing or build a website, that's in demand every day. And it doesn't even matter what you look like or sound like. So Transec is a place that both acknowledges all the challenges that we face as a community and individually, but it encourages people to go beyond their own, their own struggles and suffering to overcome their situations and become a mentor and, and, and an example for someone else. There's still a lot more Angelica wants to do to create opportunities for herself and others in Hollywood. Because for all the work that she does get, there are still some doors that are harder to open. I'm very thankful for Ryan Murphy for making space for Black uh, and Brown stories to be told. But I can't wait to do stuff with Black uh, creators. Let me tell you something, if I can say this, I feel like sometimes as a Black actor or Black creative, there's this connotation of being white famous or being in shows that white people watch, working with great white actors and producers and all of that, and that's great. Like I said, Ryan Murphy is a very brilliant creator and I'm so fortunate to have worked with him. But <laughs> I just feel like sometimes our community has a tendency to overlook our own people. We don't treat our own people like the stars that they are. I mean, case in point, Monique, you know what I'm saying? Who's trying to say, this is who I am and what I'm worth. I'm an award-winning actress. And to have people in the industry tell her, you're not worth what we what you say you're worth. It happens in so many different ways in which we don't need approval from folks outside of our community to make great art together. So the real privilege is being able to create authentic art together. I was so blessed to be able to executive produce a web series called King Esther that got King Esther got four daytime Emmy nominations. And one of them was to Janet Hubert, who played a mother of a black trans woman. So I was a part of creating that opportunity instead of waiting for Hollywood to bring me that opportunity. So I, I'm looking forward, I will say, to creating with Black folks. We started this conversation by talking about FIRST and the importance of representation. But for Angelica, representation is only the first step. I don't want to be the first. I want to be the best. I want, Or I want to be someone that makes an impact. So, I, you know, when it comes to those things, I appreciate the acknowledgement of being a pioneer. But I'm not concerned about being the first. I'm concerned about doing my best. That's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with an incredibly hardworking and talented team to make it happen. Alicia Key is the show's producer. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Ko Takasugi Chernovin. Our senior director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Big thanks to Emily Yar and Angelica Ross for talking to me. We'll have links to their work in the show notes. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend.